I had a CEO in one of these companies just stand in front of the entire company and say, I don't want any politics in this company. And that was it. And I'm like, <laughs> politics <"Well>, are gone. <laughs> perfect. Immediately. <laughs> yeah. So what do we do when we get frustrated as leaders, right? Like we make announcements. It's like how, why? This is like saying like, Scott, I'm not happy that you smoke. Scott does not smoke. I'm just saying, don't smoke. <laughs> What you have to understand is why does someone yeah. smoke? Like what is what is the compensation for it and, and so forth? So I'm an inquisitive mind in that sense. And I always feel like it makes sense to just not assume that someone is inherently having a bad intention. Because mm. if I catch anyone that practices jobs to be done and tells me this, the user is stupid, work. maybe yeah. we have <laughs> yeah. a problem. Welcome to the Product Quest Podcast. Thank you for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Scott Burleson, and joining me as always, my co-hosts Jan Vermouth and Jonathan Edwards. Today, we welcome our very special guest, Leah Therden. Leah is the, is the head of product at Jua.ai. She's an advocate for product-led growth, something we're certain to get into today. She has an impressive background in product management and leadership. But the thing that brought me, that brought her into my view this year is she is a direct and brilliant communicator, really on all things product. She's my favorite new follow on LinkedIn, where she's prolific with both quantity and quality of posts. I find myself searching for uh, her notifi my notifications for her daily wisdom. In my view, she's one of the biggest rising stars in product leadership, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Leah, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What a build up. <laughs> I, need to, I need to kind of, you know, like I need to satisfy this build up now. So, <laughs> yeah, we receive praises for our introductions. It's one of the things we, yeah. we pride ourselves on. Here. That we have figured out for the rest. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. Now I got to Now I got to deliver. OK, no, that's good. Yeah. Thank you for the introduction. Very kind words. Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. And truly, your LinkedIn followers are blowing up. You've probably added 20, 25 in the, this few minutes we've been talking, <laughs> I, I imagine. We'll get into that and product led thinking. But first, who is Leah? Where are you from? What, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, I'm Swiss and I'm coming from the frustrations that are connected with product. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So I think I got into tech about 22 years ago. Um, every year I sometimes forget to add another year to it. So it could yeah. be already 23 years. And, um, I started as an API developer, was incredibly bad at it. And then I got into UX research in various different positions. And I started to always be fascinated with, um, the human psyche and why people do are doing what they're doing, right? So like mm -hmm. understanding motivations, um, I don't know, anything that is related to human motivation. And I was very good at that mm -hmm. um, because I figured out that I'm very bad at other things, which is usually reading stuff and being precise. And mm -hmm. as I've discovered a couple of months ago, I'm actually also, um, I'm a dyslexic and I never really realized this, mm -hmm. just like Steven Spielberg. So I struggle a lot with, um, reading long, complicated mathematical constructs, but I'm really good at summarizing them. So this is one of the things that really helped me to kind of get through qualitative interviews because those are not so much about the precise data, but like summarizing stuff. Mm. And then I felt at some point that I have a, a good enough grasp on the topics that came up from this research, but I always felt frustrated that I could not change anything about it. And jobs to be done was always kind of with me, 
uh, in this time. And I figured, hey, the logical conclusion is to get into product management, which brought a lot of insecurities with it because now you need to also be accountable for more stuff. Um, but I enjoyed it a, a great deal and I think it was the right um, thing to do. And then recently now I, I, yeah, pivoted and just, you know, put myself out there. And I think that was the biggest change. I was LinkedIn reach speaking and nobody kind mm-hmm. of everybody knew me here in this country or like most of the people in the startup scene, but nobody knew me internationally. And now everything has kind of changed. It's been pretty crazy. You know? Wow. And you just, you just uh, discovered this dyslexia recently. Did I hear you say that? Um, so I always knew that I had some problems. I always attributed it to like ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, but someone else um, that is that is having it pointed me to like, it's not just like trouble reading stuff, you know, like in the classical sense, what you would yeah. expect from dyslexia. It is mixing up words that sound kind of the same. Interesting. And if you are in a, um, let's imagine you're in a board meeting and you're talking yeah. about metrics right? Yeah. If you start to mix up things and you think you said something, but you didn't and you mix it up with something else that led to a lot of insecurities. And I always kind of blamed myself, like, why do I not get the stuff right? Because you usually hear it on the recordings afterwards. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's a quite interesting thing. So, um, yeah, Grammarly and all these services that correct you have been an absolute godsend for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's, uh, that's who I am. And I always try to break down things in an easy, simple to understand way. And I think that's what differentiates me. Um, if you want to call about like the, the brand layer. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. The, um, the Grammarly also, I wish that I had that when I discovered it, I felt like, I mean, it was like, where has this been uh, my whole life in LinkedIn or word or anything you write it pulls out the things that sound good to me in my internal voice. But apparently that's not correct English. My 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 lawyer forbid me to sign anything without sending it to her first. Any mm. contract or anything, because I'm just like, she's my grammarly, right? But on the legal side, she's my grammarly. That's yeah. what it is. So that's the effect in on my life in this regard, yeah. I suspect will come. I I suspect that is somewhat of a superpower, though, this ability to see lots of complex things and um to just to really understand or search for the key ideas within. I think that there is something about the listening part of, of a qualitative interviewer where you're listening to their verbatim words, you're capturing it, but it's all, but also like you have a parallel mind of what are they saying? Not just the words, but what are they communicating? Yeah. And I think, um, I'm not doing this on purpose. So sometimes people ask me like, yeah. how do you do this? And how do you do that? And how do you, I don't, I don't know how to formalize this. What I do know is, is that I'm pretty excessive in specific behaviors. So for instance, when I when I do take a user interview and I've done maybe a, th- a thousand, I would say, like, I don't know, like over my entire career, sure. I did maybe a thousand interviews. Um, I listen back to them a lot. And I also listen to myself because I was always trying to kind of compensate for my mistakes, you mm. know, like saying wrong things and then doing a wrong synthesis. So... I was so afraid of doing something wrong in the synthesis or like the problems mm. that I surfaced that this kind of avoidance of mistakes led to me listening very, very close. Um, I cannot teach this to anyone. I cannot say someone like, hey, obsess over this. It's just not, it's not a good use of your time. But I think it gave me a superpower in that sense, in that if you're so experienced in just listening back to yourself and using like customer interviews, it's very hard not to get good at it at some point, you know, like in some, in some areas. 
And then the other part is like, I completely abandoned trying to compensate in other areas, right? So like complex mm. mathematical, um, how do you say, equations, I mm. I will never be as good, right? I just, I just know that I cannot get there. And I figured, you know, like, just lean into it. It's fine. I'm going to be the qualitative queen and someone else is helping me on the quantitative side out because I can read the data, but it takes me two to five times longer than someone else to comprehend the, the complexity of like really long written reports. It, it messes me completely up. Mm. So at some point you decide to really lean in and double down on the strengths, the strength side and sort of depend on other functions or other people to help with the, the things that maybe weren't you're naturally uh, uh, interested in or, or skilled at. I think that was one of my biggest learnings. I would yeah. say that if you look at yourself in the sense of what you can bring as a value to others, right? And like, let's say, I don't know, I care about what other people think. We all do to some degree, of course, sure. right? like our friends, our colleagues, clients, people on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, I had to tell myself at some point, look, Leia, you suck at certain things, but you have a brilliant network of friends who are exceptionally good at pretty much everything that I suck at. And mm -hmm. And this is how I view also future colleagues. And that's how I hire people as well. If you are resourceful in mm. surfacing what you need, like, let's say, I don't know, yeah. um, we got to do an M&A and you do not know how to get specific numbers and you go get them over someone else. Do I really care that you did it or that someone else did it? No, I don't. I only care that it's kind of done and that this that that the insights are coming in. And I feel like we are really a combination of who we are individually, plus the people around us. I mean, they make us just so much better. And um, that's how I also set my individual goals. You know, like my 2023 goals are very collaborative with the network that I have around myself. And I think it's the best thing that you can do for yourself because you start to worry less and you just admit like, hey, I don't know. I'm going to get back to you on this, but I can I can get it right. Mm -hmm. I can get the the knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I think we're going to circle back around to that, especially when we get to uh, your communication yeah. style, which is I find very refreshing. But first, let's let's cover a couple couple basics. Uh, yeah. Product led growth. I know that's a, that's something you're passionate about, but just for folks listening, what what is product led growth? Um, it's not what it sounds like uh especially in product we have a lot of misnomers like product mm. managers managers are technically managing people but product managers don't manage people mm. and uh, pro leadership is usually about influencing stuff without managing people so product leaders <laughs> the product leaders are managing other product managers so it makes very little sense and product-led growth is also kind of a misnomer in two ways i feel first of all it deals with customer centricity right we always say like okay let the product do uh, the acquisition and stuff. But what that does is, is that people think that if we talk about how to bring your sales-led company to a product-led growth distribution, what people immediately hear is, oh, we're going to get rid of sales. And those are misconceptions that you have to deal with. And sometimes you're not even in these calls, right? So like, imagine you are uh, an executive that has a sales-led company and you hear about this PLG thing. If this is indirectly threatening your job, in your understanding, you will not get someone like me on board to tell you otherwise, right? Because you're already convinced like, oh, what is this garbage, right? Because people are usually also sticking with what they know. It's one of the four forces. We have anxiety around it and, you know, we don't want to move on. About it. So product-led growth in the end is, it's, it's putting 
the high touch interaction that the salesperson as far back in the process as possible, that is true, right? So like we, we, we are putting the salesperson a little bit back. But we try not to 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 tell people anymore how great our product is. We try to show it. And the way that I wrote about it in my guide um, is this, uh, I think this is a stage saying, show, don't tell. And I feel it's very, very applicable in terms of product-led growth. So whatever you can show should speak for itself to convince someone um, to try and then ultimately buy the product. And one of the reasons why we can do this in tech is that usually the cost structure for a tech SaaS business is very typically about 80% is people and 20% is, you know, like technology and all that kind of stuff. We can afford to give you a trial, right? Like if you think mm -hmm. about it, we have in B2C, we have sometimes conversion rates of 0.1%, which means a thousand people are using your product on a regular basis and only one of them actually converts to a paying person. You cannot do that anywhere else. Imagine you have a bakery and you give like a thousand pieces of bread away until one mm. person buys. That just doesn't work. So this is the kind of thing why it is happening right now. And product-led growth has been originally a concept in B2B because we've always been doing this in B2C to some degree. Um, but I would say it's about customer centricity and giving the customer as much as we can putting the risk to our side that we have to deliver on quality instead of like conviction. And um, yeah, it's, it's originally a B2B term, but that's how I think about it. You had a, so is the, I don't know if it's opposite, but if, if it's product led growth and it's as a, as compared to sales led growth, is that sort of the antagonist, if you will? I don't know if that's the right phrasing, but kind of, sort of what you're so, it to? yeah, so kind of, so the way that the, I think one of the misconceptions is, is that product-led growth is a business model. It's not. It's a distribution model, right? Like it deals with how you distribute the product. But mm. the problem is, if you think about the product, if you think about, I don't know, your phone as being a product, in product-led growth, the phone is not the product. The, the, the product is the entire thing in terms of like the buying experience. How do you churn? How do you recommend the, 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 the phone to someone else and so forth? And this is why I'm struggling with calling it product-led growth. It's like... Mm you know, it, it goes over more of the entire buying process. Yeah. And the, the, the critical thing about sales-led is that if you believe that you have to convince people to buy something, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, I have the biggest respect from every salesperson on the planet, I really do, because it's not a fun job. If you have to convince people and you're being also incentivized on convincing people instead of making them successful, then you will just do that. And that means that if you if you imagine, usually like, I don't know, you have ACVs of 200,000 and these lead cycles take like six months to close. And now you have contracts that are running for two years. How do you know within these two years that these people are resubscribing, mm -hmm. right? Like there, there are no mechanisms in place to make you to make you a better product. There's a lot of mechanisms to close a deal, right? Like to convince people. But in product-led growth, usually the, the models are something like, hey, subscribe for with us for a month. And as soon as you hate the product, you can cancel. That incentivizes you a lot to think about, oh, crap, if we're not doing well, we will notice it immediately in our revenue. And that's why we call it. So I would say a good comparison is sales-led versus product-led sales, because that's usually where it is. Because 96% of all companies that are product-led growth-led um have a sales department sales does not go away 
it just handles less leads with more care and which are better qualified, which is, is a good you... thing. Go ahead. Sorry, can I just, so would you, would you say that uh, the kind of this different approach or the product led approach in general is, is applicable also in any industry? So what I'm, maybe I'm uh, yeah. not fair here, right? But for me, like the sales, sales led uh, companies, there's a lot of insurances that I have in my back of my mind who kind of have this kind of almost like push approach. You push the product into the market and it kind of works, but you have to push a lot. And then, but, but would, for example, that work in all of these different industries or is it, is it, yeah. So one of the questions that you have to answer for yourself is like, what does successful mean to you? If it is about getting money, you can definitely make a lot of money with very shady practices as well. That's the first thing. I'm not saying that insurances are shady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not what I mean, but I'm saying that a system is inherently, <laughs> I'm going to invent a new term now. A system is inherently unshaded if it's in a commoditized <laughs> market. If it is yeah. easy for you to switch and compare insurances, then you will do so if you have a bad experience with one of them. Right. So healthcare is always a very interesting topic because it's also a dangerous one because you actually deal with the health of people. So, for instance, a doctor would be, in my concept, not rewarded for treating you, but like for keeping you healthy. Now, can you monetize this? I don't know. I don't want to get into it because otherwise I'm going to get angry uh, letters from doctors. <laughs> um, but I would say, yes, you absolutely can. So the question is just, does it make economic sense to put the customer into the center? In general, there needs to be a couple of conditions to be met. First of all, if what you do can be carried on to your colleagues through word of mouth, you know, like whatever I'm giving you, the phone or whatever, you can talk about it in 10 to 20 seconds. Great. That's really good. So this is an additional uh, acquisition channel. And that means it's making me, it's making you kind of part of the acquisition and it makes it very easy and cheap for me to kind of incentivize you. Hey, Jan, if you recommend this to Jonathan, then you're going to get something, right? That's also like product-like growth, right? It's like recommendations and all of these loops. The problem starts when you are in a market that is like insurances, not very fun to deal with, right? And it's something that you have to do. It's, yeah. it's like taxes. It's not, there's no incentivization in the business there to make it customer centric because if you like let's say you're not happy with the state that you pay the taxes to you cannot just change you cannot just say like oh, i'm not going to pay taxes to you i'm going to pay to the other yeah. that's not what the system is for so one of my favorite examples is a robotics company that i made a case for um they're essentially delivering robots that are autonomous to to really big uh, clients, BP, Shell, that kind of stuff, you know, like for inspection services. And these, this is very, very expensive hardware, right? It's kind of like the worst item that you can think about in terms of product-like growth. But what they're doing is they're offering it as a SaaS service, right? So it's like robots as a service. And the way that this works is, is they give you the bots and they say, look, this is, I don't know, some imaginary price, 300,000 per year per unit. If it breaks down, we replace it. No question. We make sure that it runs. So we're incentivized to keep it running. There's no more, you know, mm -hmm. like, oh, we charge you by the hour for the service or whatever. You pay the salary and we keep the unit healthy. And this is kind of the same principle because in the end, if you think about it, the hardware in this case is not the product. The product is, is that the, 
the power plant or whatever it is is being inspected. It's the same as with the camera that I'm using right now, the big one. I don't care for the camera. I care that you see my picture. And it ties so beautifully in this jobs to be done framework yeah. and about like what people want to do. And then you really detach yourself from what is the actual product? It's the solution all around. And if you realize this, then you're also quick to say like, hey, maybe the solution is now a different one, right? Yeah. I hope that answers your question. No, I think it really does. I, li I like this a lot. And I, that was for me also something, and, and I think you pointed to this, with just a general kind of how companies think of themselves, which jobs we done can change, which would say, I mean, in my view, it's something like, if you really do help people in a very general sense, kind of get on with their problem or solve a real problem that they have and, and focus on this, which is not making money, but it's kind of fixing that 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 oil plant or whatever that the robots are instructing, everything else and economic success will follow. Yeah. But if you focus first on the economic kind of stuff and making money, then you will completely change the system and, yeah. and incentivize very different practices. And for me, that is kind of a very, kind of from jobs to be done, that follows. In, in a, or it goes to well together something no like no it does and here's the mind-blowing thing about this right i said this also in a presentation last week um you should not only look at this in terms of your external customers you can treat your employees this way if you mm. understand what the job is that people want to do which is usually always a social job like i want to be valued as who i am yeah right i want to appear professional to my peers that kind of stuff you know like people have different needs and I inherently believe in the good of people. I have to say that. Um, then you have to produce a product organization or an organization in whole that is kind of enabling people to do this, right? And it's not easy. It's not, it's not easy. But in the end, if you have an organization that is respecting people in this way and that is enabling them, I know it sounds very lofty, but I'm I'm deep <laughs> in this topic and I know that it works, then how can you not produce a cool product with this? And that's what I'm saying. Like, look, I'm all for caring with people, for people, and I'm all caring for the environment and so forth, but we need economic leverage to change human behavior. That's always what it has been. Mm. If you have a bad organization, you bring out the worst in people. Yeah. If you start to, you remember these days, right? Like all of us, I've, I mean, I've been in the industry for 22 years and we did not have cross-functional teams. We were all separated, all of us on a different floor. The product managers over there, if you had product managers, they were called project managers. And then you had web designers somewhere. The designers are like in this particular room, the support guys over there. Yes. This was just miserable. And what does it do? It creates an us versus them mentality. And then you can, you can tell everybody like, oh, well, you know, like we should produce a really good product. I had a CEO in one of these companies, like that was about 15 or 16 years ago just stand in front of the entire company and say, I don't want any politics in this company. And that was it. And I'm like, <laughs> politics no. are gone. Perfect. <laughs> Immediately. Yeah. So, so what do we do when we get frustrated as leaders, right? Like we make announcements. It's like how, why this is like saying like, Scott, I'm not happy that you smoke. Scott does not smoke. I'm just saying, don't smoke. What you have to understand is why does someone yeah. smoke? Like what is, what is the compensation for it? And, and so forth. So, I guess yeah. to summarize it, I'm an inquisitive mind in that sense. And I always feel like it makes sense to just not assume that someone is inherently having a bad intention. Because mm. if I catch anyone that practices jobs to be done and tells me this, the user is stupid. That doesn't work. Maybe we have <laughs> yeah. a problem. I you know? agree. 
So yeah. I have a question around organizations as we're talking about yeah. this. There were uh, there was this idea going around, uh, probably still is, that it might be interesting to organize the company around jobs. So um, instead of uh, you know silo people around different functions, you would uh, make um, organize them around jobs. What do you think of uh, that idea? So I love the idea, but it takes a long time to get there. So two things that I noticed in terms of organizations. If you think about how easy it is to set up an organization and how easy it is to run an organization in specific frameworks, then you usually see the point that, let's say we are 20 people right now in the Zoom and we need to figure out how we're going to separate our company. And we have three features that our product has. The simplest to set it up is team one, feature one, team two, feature two, team two, team three, feature three. That's been the way that we've always been doing it, right? And then it's even simpler to say, well, now we have these feature teams. Now we're going to be directive. So Scott is telling everybody what to do. It's easy to set up, but it's very hard to maintain because of yada, 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 right? So we know all this. Now it's getting a little bit harder because now we pull people out of their silos, right? So like we make cross-functional teams. It's kind of going a little bit in this direction, but I still see a direction where we set up cross-functional teams in the sense of you you still kind of fragment the product, right? So like you say, like, okay, this part of the product is for this cross-functional team and this is for this kind of team. This is what we started to do 10 to 15 years ago. And now for like five years or so, we start to add growth teams. And these growth teams are everywhere. They're kind of like what you describe a little bit. They're on acquisition, they're on monetization, but they're also a little bit on the product. They don't focus on any of it, but they're on everything, right? So like they have a complete full view. What do you think is going to happen if you add a growth team to a very established company where everybody was used to like, this is my stuff, this is my stuff. You have to be super careful. And this is why why people like me, Elena Verna and Adam Fishman always actually advocate for slowly build this up from the bottom. Don't bring in like a head of mm. growth and then you just like go mm. in the entire um, um, in the entire company. Because the problem is, is that while in principle, I do agree, it's very hard to center around a specific job because at some point also, like if you imagine... Um, Let's take the job of, I need to collaborate with my colleagues. And if you look at Miro, cannot put one team on this. It's impossible. They have like, I don't know, a hundred product teams. For a very small company, you can maybe do it. But the problem is, is that jobs are oftentimes overlapping and you need to first yeah. train your people that they are, can actually overlap with each other. So in theory, I think this is where it's going to go. Um, in practice, we have a long way to go because we still tend to separate people because we know that they don't work well if they overlap. And some of us still have the impression that you need to be in the office from nine to five. So those are kind of problems that we have to deal with. You know, I like, I think our working environment is not yet really set up to do it, but I agree with you. That would be the best if you can really separate a product by job. I love yeah, that I thought that it's probably not the best uh, approach to assign a, a whatever VP of growth and start. By the way, I have to say, when you were talking about uh, we're not going to have politics, I don't know if you ever, if any of you ever watched that sh the um, the IT crowd. Uh, the oh, British, yeah. there was a there was an episode where the boss said, "Nobody's going to be stressed. If anybody is stressed out by the end of the day, you will be Are you fired." Stressed, 
Are you stressed, Jen? Are you stressed? Are you stressed? Yes. Are you stressed? Are you stressed? Are you stressed? I was having a little bit of a flashback to, to, to that episode. Yeah, but you know, like the reason why this happens, I always ask myself, why does it happen? Right. So, like, yeah. why do we like okay, a couple of years back, if Leah goes to the doctor, I'm gonna to go to the doctor on Wednesday for an hour. What was the first response from my manager? Are you gonna go compensate that? When are you gonna compensate that? And it's like, okay, why does he do that? Why does he do that? Because he does not have outcome-based goals attached to me that would make him happy. So this is the only, this is like, and this is why I said before, right? So like also with the organizational structuring, we always resort to what's easy to set up, even if it's hard to maintain, because we yeah. just want to have some control over something. Right. And I usually just think that managers who do that do not know better. And then usually the last cop-out that they have on LinkedIn is like, I get a lot of angry messages on LinkedIn, right? So like they usually the cop-out then is like, yeah, but how is this going to work for a multinational uh, corporation of like 50,000 people? And I said like, I don't know. I never managed one of those. <laughs> it's like, yet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. No, I have a no, very no, specific, no, I have a very no, specific limit. Yeah. 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 I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there is, I think it, well, all these ideas and stuff that we have, but maybe about structure and everything, you really have to take into account where the organization is at. And that really depends, yeah. like, what is the, I mean, I think these, mm. all these kinds of ideas, they help with figuring out where do we want to go, but what the next step is, that really, really depends. And there are some occasions, I mean, I've, I've experienced this in, in a couple of companies where, for example, they had a merger, right? They merged with another, and, and then that's a perfect moment to introduce a concept like that. Because you have you are anyway reshuffling everything and, and all that kind. so there are a couple of moments where you where you can kind of make a leap forward, but everything else is so I mean it's highly political. People yeah. are have been trained to find for their budgets and their budgets are defined around their function. So ve go very, very slowly. You can burn yeah. Okay. Here's a funny story about Microsoft because you now you just reminded me of it. So let's say you have a quarterly budget of 250,000. I'm not saying this happened while I was at Microsoft, but I say that it happened <laughs> at Microsoft. So let's say you have 250,000 for your kind of business unit, right? The yeah. way that we used to allocate budgets is if Leah doesn't use it up by the end of the quarter, then yeah. she's not going to get it again, right? That's a very American concept that we used to have. I'm pretty sure there's some companies out there that still do it. Microsoft has matured since then. But what this leads to is you have about 90,000 of your marketing budget over. So what do you do? We started to build beach baskets for, okay, this is a technical company, okay? Like beach <laughs> baskets, like like this size, I don't know, like uh, two by two meters, right? Like really big things and started to send them to our customers <laughs> just because we wanted to send, like we wanted to spend the budget and the rest of the budget went into deodorant sticks. Deodorant <laughs> sticks with, with the font on it. Oh my God, what was the, what was the name of the product? Something as long as it was more clippy, I think you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was, I was there when we launched uh, Windows Wisdom. Oh, that was fun. That was right. the Balmer area, um, era. Um, no, but like we had deodorant sticks with a product name on it, and I was always thinking, like, what are we saying? Are we? <laughs> <laughs> What's the metaphor here? <laughs> what is the metaphor for the customers? <laughs> I'm not sure. Stinks. Yeah. This will help. <laughs> yeah, but here's yeah. so so to, to Jan's point. Here's the thing that I noticed in consulting. There is this is a very good point, right? So like when companies are doing M and A's or like, and there tends to be a specific pattern when this happens. So the first pattern is usually okay. 
if you're below 5 million ARR, you're probably a product market fit company, right? Like you're trying to find product market fit. That's kind of like, okay, we know that, right? That kind of makes sense. It turns out, unless the company has grown to 35, maybe 50 million ARR, they're not going to change their distribution model as well. If you go into a company at 20 million ARR and you say, hey, let's do some PLG, they're still figuring out their sales-led process. There's too much optimization potential in there to go for product-led growth. And the cool thing is, is that this distribution model does not kill the sales-led approach. It really doesn't. But it's really good to have it side by side. And that's that's maybe the last thing that I want to say on this topic in that regard is that you can have sales-led growth in your company, marketing-led growth company, uh, marketing-led uh, growth distribution and product-led growth distribution at the same time. It just turns out before you are 35, 50 million ARR, you should not do two of them. Figure one distribution model out and then go into the market with it. That's kind of a rule that I live by. I heard it first also on a podcast. And um, yeah, I got to say, yeah, it's pretty accurate. Sorry, could you repeat that point again? Which one? The 35 the, to 50 million? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know, like the entire thing, the last three minutes. But... Yeah, well, the, the, the key point. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like I've so, missed something there. Excuse me. So the last point, the, the point is, once you start to go above 35, maybe 40, okay. 45, 50 million ARR in SaaS, tech i always need to be specific sure. because otherwise i have other retailers telling me that i'm crazy sure you're usually not introducing a new distribution model and with that i mean that if you're already marketing led or sales led or product led growth like if whatever you're doing just stick with it until you have figured it out because okay. you can layer another one on top of it as well yeah. i mean yeah that's I, I guess that's my summary so you don't want to cause confusion by introducing mul these multiple sort of perspectives. The company's just stable. not ready. Yeah, yeah, the company's just not ready. And that's usually also the price point where you do M&A, right? So like this yeah. is usually the first time mm -hmm. where you have enough cash in the bank to lift anything. Yeah. It's very rare that before happened the big M&As. I mean, of course, right? Like, I mean, what kind of company can you lift if you have an M, uh, an ARR of 5 million? Yeah. So, so, sorry, go ahead, Jonathan. Well, I mean... I actually wanted to go back to the the definition of product led growth with maybe just an example because I'm I'm not sure I've I've quite gotten it yet but mm -hmm. um, yeah ah so okay okay so let me try again I would say the simplest symptom of product led growth is to have a trial to try something instead of a salesperson but that's not just what product led growth is. Um, and I can explain it to you on an example of something that is a bit unintuitive. So if I say customer centricity, right, like transparency, giving you as much as I can before you have to speak to a person, because sometimes you have to, even in the most product-led businesses, sometimes you cannot cut out the salesperson because the setup is really complicated, or you have a very specific niche product where I need to understand something from you. There's a big setup necessary, whatever. But let's say you agree on the principle that customer centricity is kind of what product-led growth is. And we know from research that people don't want to talk to other people when they make their decisions, especially not if the other person is incentivized to sell you something, right? So let's just assume we agree on this. Now, if you sell something through an API, like we do at Jua, 
which is a weather-based uh, machine learning startup, right? So like we deliver our data, like we deliver superior data. I cannot really give you a trial for this, but what I can do is I can try to understand what you need to have an easy way to understand what we deliver. And that can be documentation, that can be a sales process that is extremely customer centric. So we try to understand what is success for you. Do you already use something existing? Um, that kind of stuff. And the kicker in there is, is that even for sales, I can put up something product-led. So for instance, let's say you are a salesperson that sells me Slack subscriptions. Slack had, I don't know whether they still have it, but they had a specific metric for the salespeople where they said, if a customer is sending 2000 messages within the first 30 days, then we consider them to have reached a specific moment, which is, I don't know, I think it's habit or eureka moment. And if you do, then you get a bonus on it, right? So it's not just about the amount of licenses that you sell me in some way. Mm -hmm. It's about whether the customer is successful. Mm. And usually that looks like you still get some money for closing an account, but you get much more money for the expansion. So if a customer comes in with five licenses, they use it, they're happy, then they expand to a hundred, you get much more than if you just sell them a hundred from the, from the get-go. And that's kind of the thing. We try to incentivize and measure customer success. So this is, um, was it Karl Popper that said, uh, what gets measured gets managed? There, there was an interesting post about this also today. Someone asked like, hey, like, are Peter you looking Drucker at your... Or something, yeah, yeah or Peter Drucker. Yeah, that's possible. So um, are you looking at your competitors to see what you should build and so forth? And I'm of the strong opinion, don't do this unless you're quite early. Um, because first of all, if you look at something and you try to copy it, you can just reach their kind of level. And on the other hand, your product is not just a product, right? Um, it's much more than this. And usually you cannot just apply what others are doing to your own product. And you're not really incentivizing the customer success again if you look at the competitors. You just try to do what they do. So I'm kind of a purist in that sense. And I try to make sure that all my teams are always getting something that is customer centric. So for instance, in the case of weather, we want to increase the accuracy of our weather forecasts because we know that if we do that, that is generating revenue for them but they're not incentivized on the revenue. And that is ultimately leading to trials and freemiums, right? Product like growth is not trials and freemiums, but it usually leads to this because it yeah. creates more value. That's what I mean. Yeah. So if I can maybe just um, recap, uh, just go back on what you said, sure. make sure I, I, I got everything. So the idea is to, to incentivize customer success and then try and find trigger points in, in, in this, so as you were mentioning with Slack, for example, try and find moments where you estimate the customer has reached a certain amount of success. And then through the, then you put them on another kind of program to, or that's why I just kind of got a bit lost then. So what happens once they reach um, this kind of trigger point? Do, do you, what do you do then? So, I mean, it's essentially about retention, right? So like how often do you keep using a product? We have two things in there. So the first one is like the activation. How long does it take you to be activated? And an activation could be something like, I don't know, the first intense signal. Like how long does it take for you to register for an account or do a specific action in your product? Let's take the guitar that Scott has in his background. If your goal is to 
as a I don't know as a as a guitar teacher to get Scott going, then what what would you define there? Is it the amount of hours that he takes with you, or could you define something that is a bit more tangible, right? So like you could say, okay, once Scott has managed to do a specific thing on the guitar, that's the very first thing. Or if he does it recurring, then it's a specific thing. So usually what we talk about is this concept of setup, aha, eureka, and then habit moment. And the setup is like, okay, is he in a place to play the guitar? He has a guitar, he's in a place, he has a, I don't know, like he has a, an amplifier so he can play, right? So like the setup is kind of done. If that does not happen, then we know, right? So like if you measure from a hundred students that you have, that you're instructing, and only two of them are actually having a guitar in the end, then you have a problem. For some reason, you cannot enable them to play the guitar. And the good thing about this is, is that now my teams know, okay, the problem is here. It's in the setup moment. But let's say mm -hmm. you have a lot of people going through. This is mm -hmm. good. Now we can bring them to the aha moment. The aha moment is the first time they give you a smile when playing the guitar, where they go like, mm -hmm. oh my God, this is so much fun. That could be an aha moment. And the eureka moment is, is when they maybe manage to do something by themselves because they connect two things that they learned, you know, like a chord into, oh my God, look, this is sound. This sounds like a song that I know, you know, like something like this. And I know I'm breaking it down now to playing the guitar, but that's what it is. And the habit is, are they doing this continuously on a specific frame? And you cannot standardize this because every product is individual, but you will know usually after some research in your product where these triggers are. So it's basically a funnel. Is is, is that correct? It's it's basically look at viewing, viewing a product kind of like a funnel in terms of where people yeah, are so actually using it. We don't call the we don't say the F word. Okay. <laughs> we say the F word. It's a different word. No, we don't say the F word. Okay. At this point, I will point this 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 section I will point out to my friend Elena Werner because disagreement. That's good. <laughs> no, it's not a disagreement. You're absolutely right. But the thing is, it's you want to look at this as kind of like a loop. What happens if somebody develops a habit moment and says, Jonathan enabled me to play a song on the guitar and I'm learning now new things, you know, like it's kind of like it's becoming a habit. What happens? I'm going to go to my friends and talk about it. And then these friends are also going through the same loop, right? So like the okay. question that yeah. you have to ask yourself is for every person that I'm getting to play the guitar, how many of the, like how many additional people does this person bring me? It's not like two or three, right? So like usually it's like one point something. Um, so 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 that's why you should not look at it like as a decreasing number it's mm -hmm. about maximizing this and a good example is okay like let's say someone is really happy with you and they love playing the guitar and you know you used to in these music lessons you give them like uh, these business cards you know like the little business cards yeah hey look if you have another friend that loves this right mm. and it's kind of product like growth like hey look i play this guitar it's really amazing look here's a card from my teacher so the easier that you make it for people to have this network effect, the better. And that's kind of product like growth as well. For each, so for each product that you're working with or looking to integrate this, or so these are the three main phases, the aha moment, the eureka moment, and the habit moment. And you'll 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 try to, to what you'll try to define what does that mean for this product? What is what is a what do aha uh 
customer uh, um, experiences or what things that you described things that I would be doing. Like I had an aha, I enjoyed something. Maybe I learned a chord. So you yeah. would define what a customer I'm, I'm searching for the word behavior, activity, something like that. Yeah. For each of those three phases. Is that right? Or thresholds? Look, it doesn't matter what you call it, but in yeah. the end, you want to get together into a room with your product teams and yeah. figure out and say, okay, let's think in the mind of the customer. Yeah. What are consecutive steps mm. until the end where someone yeah. develops a habit? Because yes. you need the habit. If you do yes. not get to the habit, then you're only good in acquisition. Right. And I just call it set up a how eureka and, and habit moment. It's not my invention, by the way, right? Like, so, I mean, this is a very known concept, but I think it's important that you don't end up with like 20 of these metrics. It's just keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Find yeah. the stuff that matters for people. And especially like, let's say you have a marketplace, you know, like, or it's some application like Uber that has different types of users. You can define these customer success metrics for different types of users of your network, for the drivers, for the, um, the passengers, for the delivery people who are using Uber Eats and so forth, right? So it's what it does is it really lifts you above of this kind of looking at, oh, how many people have visited this site or how many people have done this and have done that. Yeah. It's a really powerful thing, um, but you should keep it simple so yes. you can also kind of influence it. Right. So is the aha moment to me that tell me if, this, if I'm thinking this right. It's almost like as the user of a product, it's the first moment. It's like, I think this might work for me. I'm, I had a positive experience and I'm, it's not a habit, but it's like, I can almost, oh, wait a minute. This might, this might be something I can use. I feel good about it. Is that, am I thinking about the aha the right way or? Think about it in this way. If okay. I tell you something about a product, let's say yeah. it's the guitar. And I tell yeah. you that, Hey, Scott, playing the guitar is la 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 la, right? Like something. Yeah. That's the value proposition. Yeah. I give you an idea on yeah. what you will get. Yeah. The closer this idea is that you have to the experience, mm. then you're reaching the aha moment more likely, right? So like, that's your aha moment. The aha moment is, oh, that's what this really does. Right. And if it matches up with what you thought it is, wow. then you have reached the aha moment, right? So like, it's the closer the value proposition is to the value experience, the stronger right. your acquisition. But here's what's important. Right. The aha moment is only telling you about this part of the acquisition. Right. If the guitar right. is not good to use for repeat usage, then you will not reach habit. You will not get an eureka moment where you're like, oh my God, you know, like, because there's a difference between the first love and going into a deep relationship versus, oh my God, this is so amazing. And then you just kind of fall off. There's a lot of products out there that are really good in hooking people. So they got this part of product led. Right, yeah. right. So like the acquisition yeah. stuff, because yeah. it's simple to use, simple to onboard. Yeah. But then the repeat usage is not good enough. So this is yeah. one of the trends that we're seeing right now. We are starting to optimize for teams for heavy usage, right? Not yeah. just like, okay, you know, like I want to do something funny with one video or one document. <laughs> what happens yeah. if I want to do 100, 200? And that's this kind of balance that you have to strike between first time users and heavy users. Mm. And usually the system that you can use there I don't, I don't recall exactly the the name of it um, or in which context that I heard about it first, but it's kind of like a perceived simplicity. And that works in the sense that if you look at user interfaces 
more like the user experience, you try to surface functionality that most people use first and the complex stuff for the heavy users only there where they, if they actually look for it. Yeah. So you make it kind of customizable. If you look at Word, for instance, it's, yeah. you know, it's right. just like in your face. It's good yeah. for repeat users once you know it, but it's not good to learn it completely new if you've never used it. Oh, that's fantastic. So yeah, I like that I, I'd like to dig in a bit more into the relationship between this um, loop and mm. the different phases in the in the loop and the the jobs to be done as this came up at the beginning of our discussion. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that each? I'm just trying to understand what how each stage stage relates to jobs to be done. So would it be that the full um the full loop or let's say one way around the loop is a full job is it that every stage is basically you should think about as a single job or is it something else is it more about the level of engagement and it has nothing to do with that what are your thoughts on on that so it depends a little bit on what kind of school of thought you use for jobs to be done. Like if you go with Ulwick, he kind of takes a job and then he thinks about it in terms of like, okay, we have six job steps, right? Like, and then you go through a sequence and you do this and that. I don't think it matters that much in the sense of like, these are not different jobs. You're still trying to do the same job. Like I may be doing, I don't know, uh, let's take some product, uh, Grammarly, right? So like the job is for me to, uh, I, I, I want to write without mistakes or it's kind of a stupid job, right? Like, you know, like in the end, it's about, I want to appear professional to my peers. I want to, or I optimize my time, whatever. So the very first time you're using the product, the job is still the same. It's the same also when you're doing it more, right? What I love about this concept of customer centricity is, is that it adds this additional layer on top of jobs to be done. It's just that in order to fulfill the job in different stages, you need a different kind of product. So mm. at the very start of it, mm. it's important that you have a short time to value and that it's simple to onboard. But if you want to come from, oh, now I'm an early adopter to now I'm a heavy user, now the product needs to have different kind of features, right? And then if I'm going to go from this stage to recommending the product, it needs also different features. Um, HubSpot is calling it in their flywheel uh, thing it's calling attract engage delight so you know like going somewhere you're a stranger and then you become a prospect and then from a prospect you become a customer and then you go to a and, and then then you become a promoter and for each one of these steps you just have a different functionality that the product needs so if you want to recommend something i can make it easier for you right and um then the features change but if I make it too complicated, then I might actually deteriorate the experience for the people who want to go from strangers to prospects and so forth and so forth. And that's why I think it really works beautifully with jobs to be done because the job in the middle does not change. That's it's interesting. The same thing. Use the example of HubSpot. I'm a HubSpot user and it's something that I was able to grasp pretty easily. It, it, it occurs to me they're following uh, something very close to what the model you described because it's very easy to get at a functional level. And then from there, you want to do something a little more complicated that it's that, that is there also. This is, this is not sponsored by HubSpot. I'm just, just, my <laughs> Oh, we're going to go into it. 
I am not employed by HubSpot, but they are the best example of product-like growth that you can have. Ah, well, so that's this- that. So that's because re- as you're describing it, it's funny to use that example. I'm like, as an as a user, I'm like, yeah, yeah, because and when I want to do something more difficult, it's like their support is right there. And it's like if I'm in the middle of trying to do something, all right, okay, I went as far as my skills could take me, and now I'm stuck. You know when I want to get unstuck immediately, not yeah. tomorrow, not yes. an hour from now, because tomorrow I'm, I'm on to something completely different, and I don't even I don't even care about that that whatever complicated thing I was trying to do. They get you unstuck very very quickly. So that's yeah, it's very interesting. You just you hold them up as a good example. Yeah. So this podcast is not sponsored by HubSpot, but if somebody from HubSpot is listening, I want to have We're a open. I want to. Yeah. <laughs> I want to kick back right now, right? And Scott does as well, and Jan as well, and Jonathan as well. Okay. So here's the story of HubSpot, because they have been the original gangsters who actually did this. Wow. So if you think about it in terms of product-like growth, this was a business that I never remember the the amount of revenue, but they put, but like HubSpot was always doing well, right? So like, uh, especially when they were sales-led, they were sales-led at some point. They had the very classical model that you would expect from I don't know, Salesforce, you create demand with salespeople and then you go out, you try to sell your software and that's that's what their acquisition model was. The interesting thing is, is that they had a year on year growth of about 30 to 40%. And they still were like, hmm, maybe we can disrupt the market. And that's, mm. that is insane if you think about it, right? Like so yeah. you have you have a model that works, right. everybody's happy. Right. All the salespeople are super, super happy. And you still start to disrupt. So the way that this worked, if I recall it correct, um, they had a product team set up at some point and said like, okay, you're trying to do this different with a self-onboarding product. I don't want to see you work on our main product. You're just going to commit your own uh, code base. You're just going to do this somewhere in the floor, uh, like not on the floor, in the basement, you know, like like the IT crowd. You just think like, there's this team that works yeah. on this. Right. And what you see today is... The result of this, right? They have five different products in HubSpot, the CMS, the CRM, and so forth and so forth, you know, like for different stages of the company and different needs. It does not matter which product that you onboard, even if you've never touched it, it's very easy to get on board. And I love this so much because it's so close to your problem, right? Like exactly what you said, Scott, is also that was also my experience. When I brought HubSpot into a small PDF, which is a document management platform, 50 million monthly active users, you know, like huge. I love small Huge PDF. deal, huge deal. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the way that we brought HubSpot in there is I got their demo, I set it up for a little sales department inside of small PDF for like two people. It was me and another guy. And we were just like, okay, let's get business going, right? Like we want to we wanna have a sales department. So we set it up. It kind of worked. We called this guy. I don't remember how he's called. And then at some point, we got also in contact with uh, Kate, our customer success uh, person, whatever. You know exactly what you described. Yes, yes. The experience was so flawless and so good for me. And I also love the product. That day, I immediately bought HubSpot with a lot of cash, stock, for 170, I did not do any due diligence, and the stock <laughs> the stock went five times until it crashed again. You know, like a correction. But that's the thing that you have to understand, right? Like this was so customer centric. I loved every bit of it. And the way that HubSpot is structured today is is that you have salespeople who are really responsible for the sales process. They're trying to do that one really well. But you also have customer success agents. You have expansion agents. 
So they're also helping you like once you got to know the product and you just want to expand. Uh, so sales still is getting some incentivization. It's a big company at this point, but they're doing it right. And going back to the original point that I made like 50 minutes ago about organizations enabling you, HubSpot is yeah. still a company that is trying to have really small teams, you know, like really independent units of like four to five people if possible. And that's, that's really cool. You know, that's why I'm saying it's, I, I use this metaphor of like, you cannot tell from the prepared dish how something was done. You can tell whether it's good, but you do not necessarily see on the inside how it's been done. And that's what's so beautiful, right? Like the, the, the success of them is not that they were figuring out, oh, let's make it customer centric. It's because they had an organization, they had the backing from the CEO, they put the people away, they let them do it without any of the disturbances and then it worked. It's hard to copy. It's hard to copy, yeah. but the hype is deserved. Yeah. And that was the end of our HubSpot sponsored segment. <laughs> <laughs> just sign up at this link and put in this code. No, just kidding. <laughs> Not a sponsor. Uh, just for completeness, um, I feel like I understand the sort of the, what the aha moment is and the habit moment is. We have this, just for completeness, we have this eureka moment in between. So how would you, how would you, and I realize you probably have some variability around it, but how would you define that eureka moment? Um, do you know this emoji that you have on LinkedIn with the insightful thing? Like, yes. Oh yes. my God, that's really cool. That's yes. something that you did not expect. Yeah. I would say that's a good summary, right? Like this is someone said, oh, I did not know that you can do that. So for Veed, for instance, um, I had this, uh, Veed is a, an online video platform. Like you upload your videos and then you can edit them. The first time I used their subtitle. Uh, feature, mm. which was just analyzing your audio and then made a subtitle and then you could edit it on the fly. I was like, oh my God, that is really cool. And I did not see that for the first time when I was uploading a video. It was like further down the road. And usually as a closing remark to this, it's a sequence. You go from setup to aha to eureka to habit. Not always, mm. But usually, right? You also have the more straightforward users that are just using one function in your product and they do it continuously. Yeah. And that's kind of fine. But, you know, whatever you're going to call it, make sure that it is something that gives you a signal in the sense nobody would do this particular thing without being successful. Mm. Yeah. But I think it's already, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like all these tools that you mentioned, small PDF, V, I've used them all and I love them from the first moment. <laughs> I think what what some of the some of the power of that approach is it, it doesn't depend on 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 the words and all that kind of stuff, but but trying that the goal is habit. I think that in itself is already power. The, the goal is not the sale. The goal is not the what, but the goal is a habit. So we yeah. want to kind of which everybody agrees is super hard to do. It's very difficult to to create new habits oh. because people don't like that. So usually, I mean, and so but. Uh, uh, alone the goal alone that we want to be somebody who builds new habits for our customers is is i think very very powerful in itself however you get there and probably yeah. that might depend but i love that structure that you have there but that the goal is a habit building thing is is i think is a very powerful thought and that's the counterintuitive thing do you think you as a product team would care so much about the habit if your customers would stay for two years guaranteed not sure Maybe not, yeah. but if they can leave any moment, yeah, you will get a very early signal that something is wrong, right? If the revenue is starting to tank, the CEO is going to come and show up more in the office. <laughs> yeah, that's just what it is, right? <laughs> so yeah. yeah, yeah. 
but maybe so but how i mean maybe that's a weird question but you have to trust your product a lot i mean you really have to be confident that yeah that's a thing that works yeah you're gonna get you're gonna get punished if you don't and that's the thing right so like you better establish product market fit before you scale any of it yeah. You have to make sure that this is the case because a lot of companies, they just pretend that they have product market fit, but they don't. And then they dump a lot of money in acquisition and then they're dead three months later. Well, not three months, but let's say 10 months because yeah. you can obscure the fact that you don't have habits, that you have a great acquisition. People are onboarding, but nobody's using it forever by just adding more people on top and top on yeah. top. Yeah. And that's why, that's why just reporting Revenue numbers is completely meaningless. It doesn't mean anything to me. Like if I do angel investing or if I do any investing or whatever, or like I just, I don't know, I talk to VCs, I have to show them traction. And this mm. traction is not necessarily just, it's it's not just planned revenue. It's about, okay, for a thousand people that we're going to get into the product, especially in B2C, you have these numbers. For a thousand people that are coming to the site and that have signed up, this amount of percentage is still here after eight weeks. Yeah. If the number is lower than 10%, you're in trouble. And I know you're in trouble. Yeah. Because none of this is sustainable. If you're if it's above 16, 17%, well, okay, then maybe I'm interested. If it's 20%, 25, oh wow, you have a really good product. And these yeah. are numbers that we just know. It's not always you cannot always stretch this over all industries. Yeah, but it's yeah. it's um you know that's the thing i always talk about it in the sense of like a bucket with holes if people are leaking right out of it again why would you give give in more water at the top it makes no sense get product market fit first and that means if you hire a thousand people into your product you better employ them after eight weeks uh, or like enough of them because otherwise it's not sustainable yeah companies scale way too early it's not I what think, it should yeah, be. I agree. Yeah. It sounds like if so, if a company say they don't the product's not all it should be and they're sales led, let's say, that they could really get into a bad feedback loop of trying harder and harder to sell harder and harder and harder to keep in the, so their their bucket's leaking. So they just how much faster can we put water in that bucket? Yeah. So exactly. things look yeah. and it, it would be a, it'd be a tough cycle to break. I mean, if you're the leader, because you almost have to admit there's a problem and the problem's probably not more sales trading or the answer. I'm sorry. is probably not more sales trading, but that's an well, easy lever to pull to your quote. While ago, we resort to what's easiest to set up. See, so, yeah, exactly. I'm listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we all know the story of Theranos. Right. If you yeah. cannot prove if right. you if you if you cannot prove that it works, right, you better make sure it works, right? right, before you start to sell it more. It's the same thing. I'm a big flashback when I when I, I took a marketing class in college a bazillion years ago, and um, I got a I got a bad grade on this one test, and everything about the like the solution they proposed, it was all about selling and your messages and my i was like no it has to do it sort of has with, with how my brain works no it has to do with if the product is crap or not and so i get this terrible grade and i remember wow i guess i, I was an engineer taking marketing class so i was like ah, i guess i have a lot i guess i have a lot to learn but then i reflect back on that it's like wait a minute i think i might have had a point uh way way back then yeah that's the thing we i think in school we just we check for correct answers yeah. And I can tell you that no matter what product that you create, 
you're not going to get the right answer in the first go. I don't know sure. a single person that got the first. It's going to take longer than you think. There's a reason why most companies need to have a runway of two years mm. in before they find product market fit. There's a reason for it because it's extremely difficult. Yeah. Now, something I love about the product development space and about sports is that the truth eventually wins. Like the this this if you have this crap project product, you can't fix it with all the sales in the world, right? Eventually, the truth. At least, this is my perspective, right or wrong. The 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 best one eventually will win. Now, the best that that meaning in a broad sense, not just the gadget or whatever, but yeah. the whole the whole customer. So HubSpot, we talked about the software, but we also describe I described how fast the support is uh, as as also an attribute. When I say the product, I'm sort of. Uh, I'm referring to the bigger everything it offers. Anyway, yeah, I'm feeling very validated from way back. Actually, you're so validated. It's so easy to get something acquisitioned going. Yeah. Right? Look, it's easy to get an acquisition going. The proof is in the pudding. If you want to have long-term value, you need to have a good product. Yeah. Well, that's just what it is. Yeah. So, so you, you talked yeah. about um, ARR before. Mm -hmm. Um and how you needed more than I think you said 45 million before um, changing your growth strategy. Well, not changing, additional, yeah. Additional, yeah. okay, additional growth strategy. I was wondering regarding this product market fit, mm -hmm. is this how can you tell in the data, as as this is a very data-driven approach, how can you tell when you have, can, or can you tell when you have product market fit just looking at the, the data and what would the indicators be or the metrics be that you would look at? Yeah, so I think let's define first what product market fit is, hmm. right? So like as a, as a, as a kind of um, concept, I wrote a guide on this. So anybody who's listening to this can check this out on leatarin.com. Um, so in the end, what product market fit is, is, is that you have a, you have a you have a a product that solves a very specific problem in a big enough market and this last kind of bit is important because it's very easy for me to create a product that i love but the market is not big enough to make money from it because i'm the only buyer of it right so like it's 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 already starting harder if i have to create a product for you guys so now we're we still don't have product market fit unless the market of four people is big enough for me <laughs> you know like for whatever reason but like that could what it be that's that 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 could be it um, most companies die in that stage. They try to find product market fit and they can't. About 90% are dying, depending on how you look at it, right? So like 90% never reach product market fit. So they have an idea and they try to find product market fit. So now how can you measure it? I use the Sean Ellis test by this uh, for this one as a, as a proxy metric. This works really good if you have a lot of customers. So like in a down market B2B segment or B2C. And the question that you ask is, how much would you hate it if I take this away from you? And if about 40% or more people say, I would absolutely hate it if you take this away from me, then you have product market fit. And the ratio is extremely important in this regard, because as I said before, it's not about you finding 100,000 people. It's about you finding 100,000 people in 200,000 people, right? It's about the ratio that is really important because otherwise you cannot, 
even if you just find like one percent, right? It's not what it is. But like, if nobody, if if not enough people love your stuff, that you're using your stuff, then it's gonna become extremely inefficient to bring people on. And I think uh, Sean Ellis just, I mean, I, I think the way that he described it is, is that he looked at a lot of companies, and this was the kind of common denominator. Now, this is a metric. Every metric can be manipulated, especially when you measure it, right? If I only measure from the people who give me a good NPS rating and so forth, uh, you know, uh, it's an indicator, but I think it's a good one. So I would say 40% say that they cannot live without this product anymore mm. or don't want to. No. But there's no way to, to tell, for instance, with the retention rate or something like this. So would you say that's not a good way of looking at it? So that's a very good point because it's completely possible that people are using your product, but they hate it. So <laughs> um, if you're looking at the standard way of how we looked at, um, I don't know, how people are using stuff, right? So we have a specific activation. So let's say we have a group of people and from these people, a specific amount is activated. So they're starting to use the product and so forth. And then from these people, a specific group is retaining so they're using the product on a regular basis. That's usually where most people stop. They say, oh, that's a really good number. Now, if you look at jobs to be done in the sense of like, okay, let's measure from these people that are remaining, how many love the product. It is entirely possible, depending on what kind of product you have, that a big portion of these people are hating your product. So let's say, let's take your car. You have a car. 50% of the people that I know hate their car for whatever reason, you know, like the Bluetooth doesn't work. They don't like what's coming out of the radio, but maybe that's a different problem. Uh, you know, like how the doors are closing. It's like, it's too expensive or whatever. Just because people use stuff does not mean that they love it. And depending on the cycles that you have, it can also take quite a long time before they actually churn. And the way that you're looking at this is, is that I also, I really love Tony Olbeck's uh, outcome-driven innovation framework, where you actually also try to figure out, okay, of your, of your existing customer base, how important are specific parts of your product? How important is it for me that the car drives fast? How important is it to me that the car is quiet? Compared to how good that does my product actually now solve it. And this difference between how important it is and how well they can do it is telling you an opportunity. The bigger this number is, the more likely the people will churn, right? Because they're not happy with it anymore, but they still use it because overall, for some reason, they're using it. And interestingly, the more you are in a commoditized market, the more likely people will go away and find something else. So if you only differentiate by price and your stuff is not that original anymore, you kind of lose your first mover's advantage, right? So like if something is really, really new, let's say ChatGPT, whatever, despite of what everybody's saying, there's a lot of people who don't like it. It does a good job, but if they find something that is more tailored to what they need, I don't know, content editors or whatever, then they will go to that particular side. And that's how niche markets are actually, like essentially are being created. Yeah. Does that make sense? So you also have to look at the happiness of people that are retaining. Retention itself is a good indicator, but it does not guarantee you that everybody's happy in there. It kind of, so maybe I'm, I'm just trying to play this back to you to see if I understand it correctly, but like usage or high usage could also just mean like there's, strong, there's high barriers to change. It, and that's the reason why they didn't change, but, but it, it, it's no indication of satisfaction. So that's basically what, what we're saying. And, 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 and 
I completely agree that people are neither loyal to your brand, I'm very sorry to say, nor loyal to any kind of great tech. If something comes along that does the job better, they will, and I think they should, to be honest, they yeah. should switch. They will change because that's that's what I would do. I I, I have no intention of sticking with a, with a bad product. I mean, it, so it's a very good point. So let's play a little thought experiment. Let's say you have a B2C product. Naturally, these products have an LTV of about $100. $100 is the amount of money that people spend on you before they churn. Now, let's say you get someone like me in there and we say, like, okay, I think I can create it. I can change your product that people are spending $300 on it. And so how do we do this? Well, we're starting to introduce team use cases. And let's say you have a product that can do this. And a team use case is enabling your product to collaborate with each other, right? So like in the case of small PDF, it would be, you know, the four of us can work on a document at the same time with real-time collaboration. So we're starting as a team to store our documents there. So if Jonathan is hating the product, he's not going to go away because us, the other three are still using it, right? So we increased the LTV per person. Does that mean we increase the happiness by three times? Yeah. Absolutely not. It does not. It just we just made it harder to switch. We addressed one of the forces to switch. We made it harder for people to switch. We still need to focus on the happiness that we just now also should introduce with these team use cases. And that's why equating revenue and the frequency of usage to overall happiness is a very problematic topic. And also why I'm really regularly, excuse my English, I'm shitting on the NPS publicly. <laughs> no, it's a very problematic metric. Could I ask a, another question if I could jump in is, how does product-led growth relate to what is uh, commonly called growth hacking? Is it the same thing or is growth hacking something larger and and how does all that fit together i love this question by the way to the listeners we did not prepare these particular questions i just love your questions they're really good okay so here's the thing hacking in the sense of how most people that i know understand it like just now again as a definition is something that you cannot repeat you know like it's a clever thing to get a lot of things going right like okay with this hack i got ten thousand people into my product Hacking is completely acceptable when trying to find product market fit. Absolutely. Whatever you need to figure out, whether you do it over Google, you call some of like you call your parents, you you use this connection over there to figure out what the problems of people are, do it by all means. You have my blessing, right? So it's very good for the product market fit stage. But if you're in a growth mode, if you're scaling, right? So like you have proved that this particular thing works, if you're scaling, Hacks are stupid because you should be doing something that you can sustain. So let me explain this to you. So let's say you bring 10,000 users in with a stupid hack that you did. I mean, I'm not technically against it, but it is not a motion that is keeping, that that is repeating itself. If you think about, let's say we introduce something that is giving us a thousand users every month and is also increasing the rate of how many people that they are, you know, recommending. Remember, right? Like, so this loop that we had. In eight to nine months, the compound growth of this has surpassed the 10,000 that you could have brought with a cool hack that everybody celebrates you for. Now, that's a very theoretical concept. But what we do with growth teams and product teams in this regard is we really try to optimize the retention with something that stays. Because 
no matter what kind of hack you do to acquire 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people is something that affects the other people. As you grow and as you have an existing user base, they need to be defended. It's a very comfortable space when you're trying to do product market fit because you have nothing to lose. There is, yeah, we have no users. Okay, then we can test, we can do stuff. But as you grow, you want to be very careful because some of these hacks can cost you a lot of money where you don't see it. So let's say, let me give you a good example. It's not technically a growth hack, but I love using this example. If I incentivize you to increase the revenue by 5%, because we love revenue, right? So like now we're going to go for that. And your hack is to just disable the uh, the account cancellation page. You're going to reach your goal. You probably will. And everybody will hate you. <laughs> it's kind of a cool <laughs> hack, isn't it? Right? And that's the problem with hacks. It should never be goals that can be manipulated and hacks tend to be in this way. Yeah. I guarantee you some people that are listening to this are right now angrily typing, uh, typing to me. Yeah, but Leia, I did this and that in this particular product. Cool. Well, that's good. But, you know, like um, it doesn't matter if, whether you acquired a thousand people two years ago, if you at some point target like 10 million. It's just you're not, you know, like these short bursts are mm. essentially meaningless. And it's the same for my LinkedIn profile, for instance. You know, like I had always posts that went viral or someone that recommended me, and then I got like 500 followers more now. But in the grand scheme, if you zoom out, these were just so little that mm. it didn't really matter. What mattered was that I was consistently posting and going up there. And it's the same cycle for a product. So would it Does be that, fair? Yeah, yeah it, that was great answers. Thank you very much. I, I'm just trying to understand a bit better how mm -hmm. we can distinguish um, a hack from, let's say, a, a more serious, I don't know how to call them. Um, would it be, I'll give a definition and feel free to just... Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, break it, break it up, and, and tell me where it goes wrong. It, would it be fair to say that maybe a, a hack is whatever initiative that will increase activation or retention or any stage of the funnel, but without increasing the satisfaction of the users? Is that a good definition? Or maybe the question that you can add to this: Can you repeat it? And you repeat it ad infinitum. So let's say you think, um, I don't know, you're really popular at the university that you studied at. And let's say you went to Harvard and you have a lot of connections there. And let's say you go and talk to people and say, you use your connections and you know you, you distribute flyers to get people on the product. It's kind of a hack because you cannot go to another to another university and or like teach another mm -hmm. salesperson to do kind of the same. But depending on how you look at it, you kind of can. If I use my social network to generate leads for the company, then I can kind of scale this if I find other influencers to do the same for me. Now, the question is, is this genuine or not, right? And then we are kind of, now we're kind of back with your check that you said. Um, if it doesn't create happiness for the user or success, you know, aha, Eureka, have it in some way. That's probably a hack. That's a good point. Yeah. Or you're just acquiring now the wrong types of users. So it's also quite important that you understand who you acquire. It's not just about acquiring someone, because this is what we were talking about with Scott before. If I'm telling you the wrong thing, like, I don't know, uh, if you start to play the guitar, there comes coffee out of it. Scott is excited. Yeah, I want to make <laughs> coffee with my guitar. He starts playing. It doesn't work. What happens? 
nobody's activating, right? Nobody gets to the habit moment. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. I like this so much. It's, it's, it's really this, I, I feel like there's been so much thought going on to kind of disperse of vanity metrics, right? So looking at oh, yeah. the right metrics, I, because I, I experienced a couple of companies where, for example, I mean, I love it when I have a, a post that has a lot of impressions, right? I mean, I do a LinkedIn post, I have lots of impressions, but is that really something I should 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 be measuring? It, it Because it's irrelevant. And the same, I think it goes for companies. So many of those um, metrics, they're nice for your ego. They're re- they feel so comfortable. Right, I'm so happy that I had blah blah blah, and you can choose different. But but, what game are you playing? Like I think there is so the way you speak is is I think is so. There is a, you're playing a different game. It's not about this the, the ego stuff. It's not about these kind of dopamine hits that I can easily create. But it's I want to create a habit. I want to have fifty plus I mean, annual uh, revenue, like yeah, <laughs> recurring revenue. So it's a different. You're in a different game. I would say. Yeah, don't get me wrong, Jan, right? Like if I have a post that performs and reaches 500,000 people, I'm going to go around and show off, right? It's lovely, let's go. <laughs> but here's the question that you have to ask yourself. And I actually, I actually also found this out. This goes back to what we said at the start. What do we do if we don't have the good measurements? We resort to what's easy. And easy is yeah. impressions and the types of engagements that we have. Yeah. Now, I have been monitoring my stuff a lot. So what I do is I write on LinkedIn a lot. I have a Substack, which is a newsletter platform. I also have a podcast. And now I can start to connect the numbers more meaningful. So for me, it's not that important whether I just get impressions on my articles. In the end, it is how many people are contacting me that are generating some meaningful output. And that can be uh, newsletter subscribers, companies that contact me and say like, Leah, everything's burning. We need you for a lot of money. And then they are starting to listen, right? That kind of stuff. So so whatever the success yeah. or the end metric of this is, I can start to connect it now. And I can tell you that um, the difference between the activation of the amount of people that are coming in and what you get out of it is dramatically different than the type of content. So for instance, I had a job posting when I was starting at Jua that got like 200 engagements. So I was talking about, hey, I'm joining this new thing. It's really amazing. We, we got to do something to make the world a better place. 200 engagements, that is equating about to 30,000 impressions. Pretty crazy, pretty good, right? Yeah. Zero, zero, absolutely nothing. Zero free subscriptions on my newsletter. Yeah. Rewind it, go back to another thing where I post about a podcast with about 100 engagements. So like half of this, only 10 to 20,000 impressions, three to 500 subscribers. So depending on the content that you have, right? It's, it really is about this. It's the reach that you have multiplied by the applicability of your, mm. uh, of your post into someone's life. There was nothing for people to take into their life other than, ooh, Leah is so cool, right? It's not really helping. It really, mm. I mean, I'm not saying that this post was useless. That's not what I'm saying, but... Yeah. It's the more applicable your stuff is, the more you get actually something out of it. And this is, I, you know, I don't like LinkedIn for a lot of reasons, but for this particular part, I really like it. People are fierce if you do not deliver value for them, if you do not fulfill their job because of how it works. You're not just automatically getting a million views. The way that it works is, is you the, the, the post is delivered a hundred times. If nobody engages with it, then it slowly dies. Yeah. 
That's what it is, right? So it's like a multi-armed bandit test. That's what we call it in experimentation, where you just like you expose it to more people, the more people engage in percentage. And that's kind of the cycle that I said before. It's not about how many people engage. It's about how many people engage per delivery that we had. So like from 100 people, if two people start to engage, then it's getting delivered more, more and more and more and more until this ratio goes down to one or lower than 1%. And then they stop delivering it. Yeah, yeah I, I want to build on this. And actually, that's how well, I, Jonathan, Jan and I connected on Twitter and Leah, you and I connected on LinkedIn. Um, for for my company, we spent a lot of time on SEO, I'd say for the Pat, for say 2015 to 2021. And we got articles on the first page of Google. But guess what? Google has not sent me a single check for congratulations. You're on the first page. Let me give you a month's salary. And we spent, I spent a lot of time writing, a lot of time learning all this SEO stuff. And you see the things downloaded, but but um, the metric of paying customers was was lacking. We switched to a more of a LinkedIn over the last year or two, and the raw numbers are much lower. But I'll just say this way: the business results are much more are better, yeah. uh, and it's and it's 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 not even close. So having said that, I, mm -hmm. uh, Leah, we um I can't remember uh, again. We you've probably added fifty followers just in our power time here. You, but it's but certainly your writing is fantastic. I can't remember the first thing I read of yours, but it just stopped me in my tracks. You're transparent, just honest, bold, and it just really spoke to me. But what would you say? I mean, you're you're experiencing this from the inside. It must be equally pretty thrilling. But what what would you attribute some of that success to? Um, I don't know what the success is. I recently did a survey to all my readers. I'm not sure whether you also took it. Like I did exactly this Sean Ellis test. Like how, yeah. how disappointed would you be if I you would did. stop reading? I remember <laughs> answering it. You sure did. The, the funny thing is I scored exactly 40%. I remember so, that. <laughs> so I have product market fit. So um, as to the reasons, I don't know. I'm looking at this always in terms of a product, right? Like I try to not, like, I really try to avoid, like, the pest to go viral with something that I'm not passionate about. Because if I start to write something, I don't know, uh, politics or, God forbid, something that I'm just not that interested in, like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I'm interested in so many things, I kind of think about something that I'm not interested in. But let's say, um, yeah. I don't know, cars, uh, whatever, like, just some topic that I don't write about, and you go viral with it, then you're going to acquire a lot of users that follow you but they're not engaging with your content anymore. So if I start to post in the future, these people are just like looking at my stuff and then they don't engage. So I kind of go down. So what I'm trying to do is I try to look at this also in a product-led growth motion. I give everything for free, almost everything. Like my guides, my knowledge, the way that I look at look into stuff, I try to be approachable for people. Um, I'm also vulnerable. I try to be completely honest with people. If I fail, I try to stay in front of them and say like, look, this was a mistake. Um, and I feel like that's kind of like product like growth, right? Like I want people to be able to experience me in the most authentic way that is possible. And it's a very defensible thing because for some reason, um, 
there's not that many people with that mix. And I'm a very, very focused person in that sense, right? So like I have an ideal person that I want to have in my kind of inbound. And I don't care where they're coming from. I just know that they're coming somewhere from the product sales or marketing space. And usually, you know, like founders, senior executives, that kind of stuff. And I don't have so much as a content strategy. I just write about what happens in my life. Very authentic. And um, I have a couple of people and other creators that are doing the same and we lift each other up. And and that's, I don't, I don't know, like it seems to be something that strikes a chord with people. I did a survey recently where I asked about insecurities in the workspace. And I know for a fact that most people that answered this survey really, really want to write about work. They really want to, right? Like they want to write about what it is for them. Because for me, this is also like a catalyst in a sense, you know, like it's very liberating. Um, It's not good for my imposter syndrome because every time you do post something, you're like, oh my God, is, is this colleague reading it? Or is this one, right? There was a lot of insecurity at the start. But I know that a lot of people want to write about it, but they do not trust their abilities. And I think yeah. we kind of, a lot of the stuff that I talked about to you today, for instance, for me, this is natural. It's like, why do I even have to talk about this? It's so simple. But for most people, it's it's you're not writing for your peers that are on the same level. You always write for mm-hmm. someone that is behind you from a different area because I do the same. Like I have so many people who are absolutely brilliant marketeers and I'm like, oh my God, this is blowing my mind. But for every marketeer, it's like, oh yeah, this is standard stuff, you know? But what matters is, is that I learned something from this. This is amazing. And the more specific you are, right? I don't write like five tips to be better at this and that. I don't do that. I try to be really, really specific. Here's how you do this until the very last detail. Here's how I have a readme. Here's how I do this and that. The less copyable you are. People can literally take my stuff, put it on their profile, and it doesn't perform because it's not Leia. And it's like, I write about my stuff. And that's how I see it. Yeah. What are your, what are, you're very prolific too. I mean, there's, it's quality and quantity. What are your writing habits? Do you, do you, uh, do, you, do you sort of have a schedule I want to post every day or do you, do you build up a, sort of a catalog and then post or how do you do that? So when I started putting it out on LinkedIn and I started with 500 followers and now I'm at 16,000, this was about six months ago. I started from nothing. The only thing that I knew is that I post two times a day. That's all I knew. I kind wow. of knew that when I start to post, as long as I have a framework in place where I will learn, from it, right? So like, I'm not assuming that I know anything, right? I listen to what people say. I, I'm very, very open to, and I ask, hey, can you give me feedback on this? Mm-hmm. Um, then I will kind of improve. That's all I knew. I did not have a content strategy or whatever. I got much, much better. You know, like my dyslexia was playing tricks on me all the time. Now I have my system. Now we got to the point where I block at least one hour per day in the morning where I write on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have kids. I don't have a family. So for me, this kind of works. But if I had kids, I could not do this on the side of my full-time job. And this is quite important to understand. I don't want to give like the impression that this is willy-nilly and super easy and everything is flowers. Mm. It's a hard thing to do, to be consistent every day. And I could not do it if I wasn't passionate about it. Because I strongly believe that what I'm learning through consulting, you know, on the side of my full-time job, is helping me in my full-time job 
And what I do in my full-time job is helping me to write about it, you know, and now it becomes a cycle. It's kind of product-like growth again. Yeah. And I, I love this so much, but it's not an easy thing. All right. So you allocate an hour a day to write two posts. Is that... Uh, not anymore. I started to reduce a little bit. Okay. Um, sometimes I'm a bit too competitive with someone else, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, sometimes like I try to only post high quality. I sometimes allow myself like once a week to put it out a little bit of garbage. Um, <laughs> but by and large, I increase the quality of my posts. You know, like also the visuals got much better. They're more. Yeah. fine i guess yeah. yeah but i had to become extremely ruthless in prioritization and and where i put my energy wow i mean i i'm i'm impressed because i what, what i struggle most with is kind of keeping this consistency right staying at it consistently is there's a week of vacation or i don't know i don't today is not the day and then i'm out of the cycle and the energy it takes to get back in is like so 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 is that, what do you do to stay to 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 keep in that mode of consistent delivery kind of? you're gonna hate this answer oh no uh, are you married yes if your wife was being driven to the hospital right now would you drop from this podcast yes yeah it's a question of prioritization now i'm not saying that i prioritize my linkedin career over my family that's not what i'm trying to say i'm just saying that okay fine yeah whether whether you do something for your health or whether you do something for others. I mean, I gave myself up all my life for others, all the time. I never prioritized myself. I have now appointments in my calendar to take care of myself. You know, like, okay, for 30 minutes, you're gonna go walk. It doesn't matter whether it's raining outside or whatever you do, this is your time, you're gonna take care of this. And it's we have to kind of really stop pretending that there is a system to it because I think we're tricking ourselves. And I know this because I also have been in this way. Like before I started to write, I did a lot of research and like, okay, how do you write on LinkedIn? Uh, what are the five tips that you need to pay attention to and all that? <laughs> yeah. All of this stuff is only useful if you have started to write, if you have the consistency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is I'm dealing with a heavy imposter syndrome every day in some form or another. And I've never managed to get rid of it because it doesn't matter how skilled you are in anything. It really doesn't matter. It's just, you just replace these insecurities with higher level insecurities. So like, <laughs> I don't know. So let's say you become good at managing people. You know, the very first time I had to manage someone, I was like, oh my God, this intern is going to hate me. Am I going to deliver enough value for them? What if I mess up his career forever? What if he's going to be depressed because I'm leading him and all that kind of stuff? And then you kind of replace this, like, so you become good, right? And then you start to manage the first team and then a department and now an entire product. It's always the same feeling. And the way I, I talked about this as well, like I, I wrote an article about it, but I think the imposter syndrome that we're dealing with, first of all, way more people have it than you might think. I would say everyone has it. We all have our insecurities. And for some reason, we're not talking about it. Mm. And I think this is to extend on your point, Scott, from before. This is what I'm writing about. I can have an imposter syndrome, stand here to all of you and say like that I have it and still not appear not senior or not knowing what I'm talking about 
On the contrary, it's usually the person that talks up in the meeting and says, I don't understand this. What does that mean? Yeah. That is being perceived as senior because in the end, if you pretend to know everything, nobody's going to teach you anything anymore. And you become unsufferable as a result. And I think that's where I double down. And I think in the end, you have to ask yourself not how do I establish consistency? You, I'm sorry to say it, but you kind of have to just, you, you, you have to do it. And then you can talk about how do I optimize it? But no hack is going to get you there. Absolutely no hack. Yeah. I love and hate the answer. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. No, because it's the truth. That's exactly yeah. that's exactly it. It's exactly it. Yeah, that's I what I had so to much. yeah, that's what I had to tell myself. Stop pretending like it's an issue of technique. It's not. Yeah. I love this. The, the fact that you refer to your own um dealings with him, imposter syndrome, I think very much demonstrates why people are loving your voice so much because you're so transparent and honest and you know you say the things that a lot of us think uh but are unwilling to say because of being fearful for some reason or another i mean your point about the person that that points hey i don't understand that on the board yeah that's that's a, a grown-up thing to say and also i realize i'm just repeating what you said but i just i found it all so good and um you know, if we pretend to be the experts in everything, we, well, you're not. We're not going to learn a whole lot. Yeah, um, we set a bad role model for others. Ah, uh, yeah. This is this is the worst thing. I mean, look, why did I become this way? Not now, but like, why did I have yeah. this unhealthy relationship to pretend that I know everything? Yeah. Because this is what I thought a manager is. Yeah. I I, I didn't understand because I thought like, oh, they have their stuff together. So if I, you know. Okay, this is okay, this is the weirdest thing. This is the weirdest kind of comparison I've ever made. But if you think back in the 80s, right? So like the first hip hop artists that you had that were going on stage for like with their gold chains and everything, you know, like I don't know, Flavor Flav and all that kind Run of stuff. DMC, I grew up with them. Yeah. Run the MC <laughs> with the Adidas. Very good point. Yeah. What did people start to do? Wear Adidas. They, <laughs> they wear kind of Adidas. You want to have a part of it, right? Like you want to become like you want to be a little bit be like them. You want to be on the stage. You want to be in the center of attention. And there's a healthy part to this. I'm not saying that Adidas is not <laughs> good to have, but I think at some point we really start to also pretend to, oh, if I just imitate it, then I, the knowledge kind of comes, but it's, it's like customer success. It's, it's, it's the result. It's not, yeah. it's not what gets you there. The other thing, Leah, is when, when you, somebody like you stands up and and talks about your imposter syndrome that gives that makes the that makes gives other people they feel like they can be a little more honest also it's sort of that's sort of a gift you give everybody yeah. i hate that we're getting close to the end of the time because uh we're gonna try to see if we can't wrestle and get you back on here at some point they um any is there anything you'd like to let folks know about as we're sort of uh rolling and uh landing this plane um yeah be kind to yourself. Yeah. Forgive yourself and uh, be as kind to yourself as you are to others around you. Yeah. Well, I, I love it. Um, you know, you and I had an, an interaction on LinkedIn where I was, I referred to, I was, it's a story I've told a few times, but it's where I was teaching a voice of customer course to an, a, a, a human resources group having a conference. And yeah. as they were bringing me in, I'm thinking, wow, this is a waste of time. This is, they're wasting their money. 
And it's like, why, you know, I'm, I'm about product development. What are they? And they were wonderful. They asked, they, they loved it. Like you have these role playing. I mean, they got all into the role playing. They were serious about it and blew me away. And I was like, well, let me learn something from watching this. And I described it and you described that experience as beautiful. And I was, and again, you just sort of stopped me in my, my tracks. And so you've got a very unique voice and I'll be, I'll be still reading and I'll be still listening, but Hey, we certainly appreciate the time today. And uh, can I share I one more story before oh, we please. go? Please, absolutely. Please do. All yeah. right. One of the most beautiful experiences that I had in my mentoring career is that, so I had to stop giving free mentorship stuff, right? But like a year ago or so, I was listed on the mentoring club and then people could just book me. So this guy is booking me. I just give him a fake name, Jordan, whatever. Yeah. And he comes in there. It's a relatively old gentleman who's like 56 years old. And he's clearly not familiar with tech products. Right. And he's coming into this call and he tells me about this book that he wrote about how to how he has this amazing technique to make people learn faster. And I'm totally confused about what he's talking about because, you know, it's all over the place. Like, you know, like, oh, these 20 different concepts and everything. And it was so difficult for me to kind of understand. But I went in there and I also had a resistance initially on the call. But I went in there and I said, like, okay, if there is something to learn from him, I will find it. And at some point, what he struggled with is, is that it was not so much his book that was a problem. And I'm pretty sure, you know, like he, he did a lot of research and everything, but he had, he, he struggled to explain what it is about. And it completely blew his mind that setting up a landing page just to see how many people would land there and then go around and distribute flyers with what he thinks this is doing, you know, like motivate children to learn something or like how to play music or whatever it is completely blew his mind like he was listening so closely and i love this right and then the conversation got going and he was like oh that's fascinating right so so we completely got away from like what the book was about to is there a need in the market and i kind of try to teach him with an hour or two what jobs to be done is through through a compl without mentioning it ever and it was such a challenge but it was so rewarding um it, it was really, it was a very warm experience for me. And I also posted about it on LinkedIn afterwards by, you know, like changing the story a little bit. But I was like, oh my God, I had the most amazing session right now with this guy. And I don't think I would have done this five years ago because I would not have listened. I would have just been like, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. It's like one of these confused guys, right? Yeah, so yeah. see the people behind everything. If you mm -hmm. And if you cannot do that, then try to see what they are trying to do as their job. Mm -hmm. I love it. I think that's one of the things I've I've sort of appreciated about jobs be done later. Not I mean initially it was like, oh great, I can do, make good products. But later it's like, wow, you really have to care about what somebody else yeah. is trying to accomplish. And it's yeah. like uh, yeah. your jobs be done, it's like so simple. Uh, you, you fire a product to accomplish a job, but then there's but then at, at its core, there's almost a kindness there. Uh, of, of, and then in your quote just a minute ago, be kind to yourself. So maybe we should think about the uh, our own jobs as we're trying to <laughs> treat ourselves as customers at times. Yeah, you know, my job is to entertain you and have a meaningful conversation. And I think we achieved that. So that, oh, was, that was really lovely. Most yeah, definitely did. Super satisfied. 100%. 100%. For the record, I voted 
on the poll that I could not do without your post. So I was one of the ones in the 40%. Uh, I was so now I'm going to monetize you. Of course, you saw the responses, so you knew, probably knew that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, folks, you can find uh you can find Leah at leahtherin.com. That's L-E-A-H-T-H-A-R-I-N.com. We'll put a link to her site on our product quest podcast section on LinkedIn. Of course, you should know that you can find Leah on LinkedIn and we'll we'll post links to Leah's uh, site. Um let's see, and that's pretty much it. Uh Leah, thanks so much. I've learned so much from you. Uh, reading your post and uh, this was just delightful a lot of fun I hope we'll do it again sometime I hold you to it for sure <laughs> All right. thank you so much for having me um, thank you so much thank you thank you and that friends concludes today's Product Quest podcast follow us on LinkedIn and reach out to us at productquestpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you next time So great, yeah, really, really enjoyed. For the great questions, I really enjoyed this. You know what? We're not friends if you don't invite me anymore. <laughs> you don't have to drag me. Just good questions. That's all I need. <laughs> <laughs>